Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time for our uh, second edition of uh, Remember This Collapse, a, a very special uh, presentation of Remember This Crap. Uh, we just did one uh, before this with uh, Mike Prasnowski joined Mike Donahue and myself, and we talked about collapses from 2001 to the present day. Uh, but the Cubs, I mean, they're, they're nothing if lousy with uh, collapses. So we're bringing out our good friend Forklift, who's going to talk to us about collapses from 1969 until when we picked up uh, in 2001. So, guys, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Uh, this is the second time uh, Fork has joined us uh, to, to rehash some stuff, and it's always I always feel like very exciting. It's like uh, you know, being in 1948 and talking to somebody from the Civil War. It's like I mean, he was there. We're gonna get some first uh, some firsthand exposure. You know, we weren't even alive in '69, yeah. so uh, you he know. appears in several of those Stephen Crane photos. <laughs> I, I was there for the very first tomato. <laughs> when, did, when did we do 77? We did it. We, we did it. We were inspired to do it when the Cubs had that weird like death rattle in 21 before they eventually would get rid of right. Right. Remember they were like, they had a, they had, they, you were inspired because the the month of May was the best yeah. May they had had. Right. They kept referring to since that 1977 and, and I knew that the 1977 team finished 500. And it was like, all right, well, what happened to them? And so we had to bring in uh, our version of Ed Hardig. Uh, <laughs> to enlighten. Actually, we tried to get Ed. And Ed, um, his mom's Wi-Fi is not great. So uh, we got Frankenstein. So. And Ed had no stories about George Mitterwald's chewing tobacco or smuggling <laughs> no. vodka into the ballpark. Plus, he was he was not in attendance when uh, when Nick Kelleher was swinging like a chandelier from Dave Kingman. That was so great. So, yeah, yeah, your 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 first hand uh, eyewitness account really really you know really helps augment uh, you know all the pain and suffering that we try to relay. So, looking forward okay. to it. So, should we just dive in? Uh, I feel like a good place to start is probably the 1960 uh 1965 or six well, what was leo's first year leo's first year was 66 the 100 loss team right yeah so right because leo took over after he he came in after that finally threw in the towel on the college of coaches they cried they hired leo to manage the cubs and leo they finished eighth in 66. And what, was his, what was his and Leo, right? He said, this is an eighth place team. So then he, they finished 10th in 66. <laughs> He's right. And uh, that was only their second. The Cubs had never had a 100 loss season until the 60s. And that was their second one of the 60s. But unlike the other that one, is correct. Because which was, on the, was on the other end of the college of coaches at least there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel when they finally at least my, i remember my dad would say he was so almost ready to walk away with college of coaches so like he was so excited when they hired derosher because it was like shit you know just at least the college of coaches is done well and uh what's actually what's actually perversely impressive about those 200 lost seasons is those hundred lost seasons happened with two with three prime Hall of Fame hitters in the lineup. 
good point. So you had you had Banks, you had Williams, you had Santo on that yep. lineup, and and Williams and Santo were Iron Men. They played you know, 162, and in a couple of cases, 163 games in a year. And Billy, so, and you said that was 62 was the other 100 loss team. Yes, yeah. 62. The so year of my Billy, Billy was the the reigning rookie of the year, and they actually had a rookie of the year that I mean he wasn't you know. Yeah, Ken Holmes was rookie there in '62, and so and they had Banks and Williams, and it was Lou Brock also on that team. I know he was underachieving as a Cub, but Brock was Brock was on that team. Brock got traded to the Cubs and got traded to St. Louis in '64. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so it's interesting. You're right. There's a lot, there's a lot of talent on that team, unlike the 2012 Cubs that lost 100 games, but and certainly right. the '66 team still had that talent, but. You know, with expansion or whatever, then I don't know. It just it seems it's funny that they, you know, they were such a disaster in '66. It was kind of one step backwards, two steps forward, right? Oh, it was before the '60s. Well, before the '66 season, Holland uh, was still the general manager of the Cubs. He actually made a couple big great trades. He traded Lee McDaniel and Don Landrum. To San Francisco for Bill Hands and Andy Huntley. And then he traded uh, Larry Jackson and uh, I can't remember who else, but coming back were Fergie Jenkins and Adolfo Phillips. And one of the reasons the Cubs went from 59 wins in 66 to 87 wins in 67 was because Jenkins got moved into the rotation. Jenkins was in the bullpen in 66. Jenkins went into the rotation in 67 and started off on his Hall of Fame career. So at that point, you now have four Hall of Famers yeah, one of on your roster, plus DeRocher got inducted as a manager. So yeah, there was a lot of Hall of Fame credentials going on there. Now, I know now, part of Cub, a lot of Cubs lore is that season when they – was July 2nd when they uh, – Ended the ended the day in first place for the first time since the war. Were you at that yeah. game? I was not. My first game, my first game ever was in August of '67. Um, I was not yet okay. five years old, but uh, my dad <laughs> wanted to take me because, you know, when we talked about '77, part of the part of the thrill of '77 was the fact that both the Cubs and the White Sox were making noise. They both fell short, but there was this chance. Everybody had this chance. Maybe both teams win the pennant and we have a, a subway series or whatever you, they would want to call sure. it. In 67, Cubs never held first by themselves. They tied a couple times. I just looked at it today. I never, I never knew that till today. And the White, Sox were, the White Sox were in their pennant race until the end of the year. There wow. were four teams. There were four teams in the American League down to the wire. Until the last week of the season, you had hear about that. You had the Red Sox, who eventually won. You had the Tigers. You had the California Angels, who, you know, they were still pretty fresh off of expansion, but they had Josie and a couple of the Dean Chance. They had some really good players, and then the White Sox. The White Sox were basically carried by their pitching. They had Gary Peters, they had Joe Horan, they had Tommy John. They did really good starting pitching. Uh, I don't know if Hoyt Wilhelm was in their bullpen at that point. It's old but, balls. But 
but that was 67. So 67 was the year that you first had a glimmer of hope with the Cubs. Oh, they and like you said they were in first whole, place. The, the, the legend was that when they won on July 2nd, and I looked it up, Jenkins was the winner, uh, that the bleacher bums wouldn't leave until they raised the And that didn't occur to me until today that this was, this was still pre-division. So it was first in the National League. It wasn't first yes. in the division. No, it was right. some, and, they were they were it wasn't a fluke at that point. It was legit. July yeah, they, they took the flags down like they do at the end of every game, but everybody stayed until they had to re raise the flag. And that was in sixty seven. So sixty seven happens and there's actually some optimism for the Cubs. In sixty eight, at one point they kind of made a run, like in made a run but fell short the cardinals were just on fire all year and um part of the thing with derocher too was derocher had to be he didn't like the fact that there were veterans in the clubhouse that were getting more respect than he was um if you ever if you ever get three tallies the cubs of 69 he actually goes into a lot of depth on this how basically leo resented the hell out of Ernie Banks because Ernie Banks was the identifiable faith of the Cubs and Ron Santa was basically the heart and soul of the Cubs. And so he always kind of felt like those guys were going to undermine him. So he tried he tried to get Banks traded off the Cubs a couple of times. What a guy. Um, <laughs> Leo. And uh, before the, the Cubs got Orlando Sapit, he wanted to trade Banks to the Giants for Cepeda. And then when Cepeda was on the block and in 69, again, DeRosha wanted to trade Banks for Cepeda. And there was just no way that the Cardinals wanted any part of Banks. They got Joe Torre instead. And Joe Torre wound up having a bunch of good years for the Cardinals. So now we get to 69. And the, the one thing I will say, you're right, uh, about 68, I, the, the, the hot streak may have been there, but the one thing that I noticed, they were nine games over was their high water mark. Um, and they, I feel like when you, from the historic, not having been there, that it was almost like a little bit of a letdown because they never did get into first place like they did the year before, even though they were never there alone. But right. and they were three games, three games less. They won 87 games in 67, 84, and 68. You're right. The Cardinals are probably better than they were in 67, but the Cubs, I feel like, you know, kind of evened out a little bit going into 69, which which obviously is going to be a whole different story. Yeah. Well, well and what, in 68, they, they're they 84 and 78, but they won their last five. Yeah, so, and the furthest – I noticed the furthest back they were was on September 3rd, so it sounds a little bit late, you know. But otherwise, probably a disappointing year after 67. Yeah. Well, you would get – you would get something that would happen back then that you don't get now, which is players would get drafted and players would have to do military service. So is this Kenny Holtzman's like nine and oh year? Well, no, Kenny Holtzman's nine and oh year was 67, but he was just unhittable in 67, but he would only come, he would get like weekend passes from his reserve duty and come in and pitch and well, uh, he he did pretty well considering the fact that he was a hard throwing Jewish left hander as Sandy Koufax was retiring. Yeah. So there can be only everybody one. immediately saw him as <laughs> like, that, like, that was the thing. He 
Like he, the Sith. That was the thing. He was, he was, he was the Sandy Koufax you get when you go shopping at Aldi's. <laughs> Not to say that Kenny Holston was a fine tan version of Sandy Koufax. Yes. I mean, not to say that there was anything wrong with Kenny Holtzman. He just wasn't saying no, even like the no hitters, which he threw two, uh, Koufax went through five. So he's like 40%, you know, all across the board, maybe. Three. Holtzman threw three? Or no. Koufax? Koufax, Koufax. Only threw three? No, Koufax threw four. Koufax okay. threw four. Ryan threw what? Seven or eight seven. or something. Uh, yes. Holtzman had three? But yeah. But only two at the Cubs, no, right? Holtzman had two. Yeah, also had two. The thing with his first one was it was in field. It was against the Braves. Yep. The wind was howling in, and there was a ball that Hank Aaron hit. That mm-hmm. I asked, I got to ask Billy Williams at a meet and greet thing one time about that ball. Williams said the ball was out of the ballpark, and the wind blew it back in. Oh, he hovering, hovering over Sheffield before coming back into play. Wait, but it was Wait, in the left field no. well, and the ball yeah. came back in. And, but that was Kenny Holtzman's no hitter. And if you look at the game log of the 1969 Cubs, that was the zenith of that season. Everything went to shit the day after Kenny Holtzman's no hitter. <laughs> to Frank's point. Uh, just to validate that your memory is pretty spot on, uh, Holtzman's no hitter was on Tuesday, August nineteenth. Um, according, you know, three days earlier was technically the Cubs' high point of the season. Uh, nine games over on August sixteenth, and after you know, so you're effectively your point is pretty much spot on. After Holtzman's no hitter, they were eight games over, but uh, that's I guess that's a perfect spot to pretty much uh, hone in on the beginning of the end, I suppose. Yeah, twenty nine well, games over on August sixteenth with a nine game lead in the mm-hmm. in the newly 49. formed NL East. So right. I mean, I know you were just a kid, Frank, but it's like how bon- how bonkers it is. Here's this like this once proud like in nineteen forty, the Cubs would be like one of the top three brands probably still in baseball. You know, Yankees, Giants, Cubs, Dodgers were for shit, and then flip the script twenty five years later, they be all of a sudden they're the lovable losers. They don't even sniff the first division for two and a half decades. You get those three days in '67 where they're, you know, you, you taste it, and all of a sudden they're blowing the doors off the fucking league, and they're six weeks from the end of the season. I'm just like in retrospect, you can just see the kick coming to the crotch, but I'm just like in real time, I'm just trying to envision what was going through like the adults minds too. I mean, you know, you could probably recall what your dad was going through living side by side with him, but man alive, 29 games over nine games in first Holtzman throws a no, no, you know, and every kid had a cub power t-shirt and a cub power button. And there were cub power bumper stickers. What is that? Some brick house uh, slogan. I don't know who there was actually an album called cub power. Was it like uh, was it like white? Was it like white power? Well, was I it like men in blue? Were there hoodies? Hoodies? Was Murph? What? Did Murph and the guys in the bleachers have yellow construction worker well, hoods? He was playing on? his trumpet on the bleachers. Yeah. Yellow construction helmets, but they actually had a, a cup power chant that was actually basically lifted from the Black Panthers. Well, the, Black Panthers the Black Panthers had a chant that ended with Panther power. So the Cubs one ended with Cub Power. 
Wow, immediately uh, co-opting or appropriating it. <laughs> it was culture appropriation <laughs> in real time. Anybody knew what that was. So, um, but yeah, there's a Cub Power album, and please do yourself a favor. And there's got to be clips on YouTube where the Cubs sing, "We've got that pennant feeling," and all this <laughs> running down our think, leg. It turned out. Oh yeah, that's where that um, feeling was going. Well, Wait, the, was the Righteous Brothers song it was already out? Obviously, yeah. is that what it was? A parody of yeah. that? Okay. But oh yeah, they were playing "Hey Hey Holy Mackerel" on the radio all the oh, time. Yeah. It, was, it was crazy. And Santa you know, was clicking his heels. Dick Selma's firing up the bleacher bums. Yeah, like a party like like Mardi Gras. And it's funny because Leo DeRocher wound up just going with his guys, and he he was basically doing the. He predated David Ross on the guys who got him there. Yeah. And we, so, we made fun of Dusty for doing the same thing in uh, 2004. Yeah. Funny if how that works, to, right? If you want to be amazed, go to any of the 69 Cubs, with the exception of Billy Williams, and look at their month-by-month splits and look at how they hit in the month of September. I mean, these guys were not getting the ball out of the infield in September. Oh, shit. And – Randy Huntley, I know, has talked about it in interviews where he couldn't even reach the warning track. Well, how many games? We looked it up before, Andy. Like, I mean, Huntley, I think, on average, caught something like 140 games for about five years. But 69, I thought, was, like, particularly cruel. I mean, and, of course, you're dealing with the only team that's playing 81 games during the day. Right. And in flannel uniforms. Uh-huh. <laughs> The way, he only caught he only caught 151 games that year. He gave him 11 days uh, off. Slacker. I mean, what kind By of the, what kind of job do you get where you get 11 days off in the summer? Like, come on. Just for uh, just because I think the context here is important. On the day that Kenny Holzman threw his no hitter, the uh, the up and coming New York Mets they, uh, they they walked off a win against the Giants. Uh, which was their fifth in a row, um, and put them sixty-seven and fifty-one. They were still eight games back, uh, but I, I bring that up because you know I don't think when we're done hashing this out, hashing this out, that it's definitely a collapse on the Cubs, but it's also a case where like, some team just got hotter than shit. Just um, pointing I, that out. I think at some point in late August into early September, the Cubs lost twelve out of thirteen. Okay, fair enough. You still needed to have. You're right. They're still far up. But I mean, I always bed shitting going on. Yeah, we're going to get to that. They lost eleven of twelve from September third to September fifteenth. They won once. Yeah, and let's see what the Um, Mets did from September third to September fifteenth. They. Hmm. Let's see. I've got the Mets up. They lost on a walk off. They went ten and one. Yeah. I mean, the Mets, as bad as the Cubs were, the Mets had golden horseshoes up yeah. their ass. Like, they had, there was one game in that run where Steve Carlton struck out 19 Mets and lost the game because fucking Ron Swoboda hit two two-run home runs off of him. Jesus. <laughs> like, at that point, what do you do? But... I would I would be amiss if I did not tell one of my all-time 
favorite cub stories yes I know. Let, me, let me set the stage because i don't think any sort of the story i have uh for just so, labor day correct because i think this is a game that even because you were there and i want and, and, yeah. and, and you guys but like this is a game that i think objective observers will say well you know it's in the midst of the losing streak right was it labor day yeah. or yeah and so right around there on the morning, on, I, I, you know, I, yeah, on the morning of Labor Day, September first, happened just happened to be on uh, the or was it Labor Day sixty nine? It was the Pirates game, right? Yeah, it was the Pirates. Okay, so um, on I don't know why I don't see the Pirates game on the extra. Oh, there it is. It's Sunday. It was a, it was it was the Sunday, September seventh. Yeah, Sunday, September seventh. Yeah. All right. So the the Cubs at that point had they actually had a five game winning streak not too long before that, but they had lost three in a row coming in. You know, coming into that game, they lost the first two games. They're hanging on. They have a three and a half game lead, so it's a little scary. The Mets have come up close, but um, in this game, uh, it's I mean because it's been pointed to. And I'll let you take it from here. But like this is where like the, the Cubs. It seems like the Cubs finally have on the bag. Let's just say they they take a one run lead into the top of the ninth inning with Phil Reagan on the mound. They're hoping to go up four and a half because I think the Mets lost that day. So take yep. it away, Fork. And yeah, so at this point, it's a five four ball game, and they got Phil Reagan in to close it out. And Regan was, he was the guy that Leo leaned on heavily that year. He was like their, they didn't have closers in the classical sense that we know them now, but he would bring in Regan late in games. And Jerome Olsen hadn't made up his phony baloney stat yet. He did at the beginning of that year, I think. Mm. And actually, uh, Reagan had come in uh, to start the eight, or he came in, I think, in the, he was already in the game, like in the eighth inning. And And he actually gets... Uh, he gets full, he gets Moises to lose Uncle Maddie to pop out to start the inning, and then mm-hmm. Gene Alley well, gets a grounder right back to Reagan. So. I want to step on Frank's story. I'm going to get out of the way. But the Cubs had just taken the lead in the bottom of the eighth on a Jim Hickman homer. So Wrigley is Wrigley's in <clears throat> estrus. They're very excited because yeah. oh, yeah. they're going to win now. They've pulled this one out of the fire. All we got to do is get three outs and we win. The, the losing streak and, is over. We're, we're going to crew. Now, fuck the Mets. We're going we're gonna, to we, we, hard fought win. We're going to go all the way now. And there was there were two years there, 69 and 70, where there was no better feeling in the world than a close game with Jim Hickman at the plate. He came through every clutch? single time. He was incredibly clutch. Like the Aramis uh, Ramirez in the 69 Cubs. It was insane how good he was at late inning home runs or just big late inning hits. So, you know, I, I'm not quite seven. I was going to turn seven actually three weeks after this game. But, you know, I've been watching the Cubs all year. I've been watching baseball all year. I, and Stargell comes up and two outs. Yeah, two outs. Stargell's up. And I say, oh, no, Stargell's going to hit a home run. Stargell's going to hit a home run. And my dad, who is clearly where I inherited my gift of prognostication, says to me, uh, don't worry about it. The wind's blowing in. Reagan, Regan's pitching. Uh, Babe Ruth couldn't hit one out. 
<laughs> the words are barely out of his mouth and the ball is on Sheffield Avenue. And as Starchel's rounding the bases and you just feel the life get sucked out of the ballpark, this little Mexican dude who was sitting right behind us leans in like between our heads and just goes, Bet you wish Babe Ruth was playing today. <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of the time that my father was alive, that was like our code. How'd the Cubs do today? Babe Ruth didn't play. That meant the Cubs lost. Legend was born. I mean, that's an iconic game. And, and I only want to point something out that um, the game wasn't over. And Andy, I don't know if you have He's the game up. I have it up. Yeah. Yep. But if you do, I would love for you to scroll to the bottom of the tenth and tell uh, the fans, the the listeners at home, how that inning went. All right, so is, is it Lou Marone or Lou Maroney? I guess Marone. It's an E. Is pitching for the Pirates. Billy Williams doubles to lead off the inning. Ron Sano is intentionally walked. They bring up Willie Smith. Bring in the double play. Yeah, Willie lines into a double play. Oh. Uh, then they. No, but how? I'd like to dwell on this point here. The winning runs at second base. It says line drive double play third to first. What the fuck is Sano doing is my point. Oh. Jesus Christ, his run is meaningless. Like, like Billy, what, what are you, like, how are you not stable? This this guy that showed up, Don Young, that season, like, would lose his shit. The same guy that was a broadcaster in 1998 insisted on the team consoling him. The broadcaster when Brant Brown dropped the fly ball. This, like, mm. I'm sorry, you know how I feel about Sano, Hall of Fame player. Mm. But what, a, like, like, gee, like, real, you dumbass. Like, they could still have won that game. Is my point. Well, who is managing the uh, '69 Pirates? I guess I look is it Murtaugh? Because yeah, look Danny at Murtaugh. Because look at what yeah, he does. Um, look at what he does with now. You've got two outs and nobody on because of the double play. Yep. Um. Well, no. Wait a minute. Where are we? Are yeah, you're here? right. He intentionally walks the next hitter after Santo. Well, he intentionally walks Jim Hickman. Yeah. He's like, fuck that he dude. We already had a home run on us. We'll just put him off. We'll put the tying run. We'll let Randy Hundley be the tying run. We'll just All walk Hickman. Re- it doesn't make any I, sense. He can hit a home run. It doesn't matter. Actually, it was Larry Shepard was damaged here the Pirates. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. Because yeah, uh, they, they brought the World Series off. two years later. Yeah, they brought Murtaugh back. Because he was their manager in 60 also, I thought, right? Maybe not. Oh, wait, no, he's still tied. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, this is the 10th. In a yeah. tie game, he walks Jim Hickman. Well, of What's course he been... did. Because, like, Forklift was saying, he was a clutch hitter. Yeah, yes. and, and and now that dumbass yeah. left first base. I like open. that. That's I another wish thing I managers would do shit like that more now. They're all oh. afraid to do that. I don't know. Did you I see mean, in the in the so the Pirates scored twice? I mean, I don't know if this Pirates scored. Pirates scored twice in the eleventh. Did you know that a nineteen eighty four Cub drove in mm-hmm. the final run for the Pirates? Who would that be, Frank? Supposedly he was a Cub killer when he was a Pirate, according to my brothers. I don't know, but yeah, he was the pinch hitter extraordinaire in the eighty four Cubs. Probably his last stop in the majors, but he was an everyday was player Richie for the Pirates. Richie, yes, Hepner. sir. Yeah. Oh yeah, Hepner was a Cub killer. Yeah. Although that's what anybody I... all through the seventies, anybody in a Pirates uniform was a Cub killer. <laughs> Rennie Stennett went seven for seven against the Cubs. Another game you were at, right? Oh. Oh yeah. Thank seven you, thank you, seven. Chicago Public Schools, for having a teacher strike. 
I got to enjoy a 22 to nothing with, game. Without looking over your shoulder for a truant officer, you mean? I looked old when I was 12. The truant yeah. officers always walked past me. So Besides, that, I, was a little, I was a little alcoholic. I was up, they were sme- sneaking beers. So I used to be, <laughs> be there 14 years old drinking beer in the bleachers. They thought I was yeah. an adult. Getting buzzed, watching, uh, yeah, uh, who like Whitey Lockwood make the trip out to the mound, uh, Whitey or Jim Marshall, or well, that's that's uh, I've heard that story before. I'm, I'm very happy to hear it again. It is an iconic game, and it really was like the two points here you mentioned it, like uh, Holtzman's no hitter, that's the acme, and then. They had it. It felt like they had a chance to maybe put the brakes on. Although who knows? They win that game. Maybe you know, the Mets are unstoppable. But they, regardless, they didn't. So um, only well, yeah, that's, that's right smack dab in the middle of the eleven or twelve. Is that what it is? Okay, yeah. so yeah, because really, they, because they went. They maybe. went. They went to New York after that for two and got oh, and lost. Jesus. Yeah, I think the one of those was the Black Cat game, if I'm not mistaken. I think the remarkable thing about this collapse isn't the fact that isn't just the fact that the Cubs blew a nine-game lead on August sixteenth. It's the fact that they they ended up eight games out. I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, how you does know. a first-place Cub team in nineteen sixty-nine on the Sunday of Labor Day draw twenty-eight thousand people? Like, where the hell were they? The Bears must have been a Bear game. Oh, the Bears are sixty nine. The one in thirteen. The what would be the one in thirteen? Sorry, Bears? can't watch the can't watch our first place baseball team. Got to well, go watch the Bears. They're clearly on the road because I believe that was their second to last year at Wrigley Field. Yeah, they were still playing at Wrigley then. <laughs> or did they play? Interesting. Or did the Cubs have to play that at like seven o'clock in the morning so they could get off the field? Bears are going to need the field, guys. So let's hurry up. <laughs> You know, I, I um, wonder about it. That's a good call. Like, where? how could they not sell out Wrigley that day? Um, maybe they did want us they, they could watch the Bears on TV, I reckon. The Friday game know. only had 10,000 people recall, in it. As I recall, it was pretty crummy weather that day. As I recall, said it was, it was wind, the wind was howling in. He said the wind was howling in from the wind lake. Was howling right? in. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you were there, so you did your part. But, uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, the I think the Tuesday night game. Actually, no, I can't remember. Actually, what might have been that Monday night game was the game where uh, Bill Hands drilled Tommy Agee to start the okay. game. Really, and then and then Kuzman uh, the next. The first batter up for the Cubs in the next inning was Santo, and Kuzman drilled Santo, and all the Cubs just sat in the dugout. And... Oh, now here, here's what I'll see is that he must have thrown inside to Ag because Ag started off grounding out to Santo to start the game on a two-two pitch. However, Ag later fucking homered against Hands in the third. So, but that's an interesting. So you're saying that a little bit of an inside, in, right? The Mets were right. chippier, so, and the Cubs were already like. Yeah, so I think he hands. buzzed Ag. He buzzed Ag, and then uh, Kuzman drilled Santo, and I mean he drilled him. And uh, Santo was yeah. apparently completely. He Santo said he had no idea he was going to get thrown at. 
You're absolutely right. It's on the first pitch too. It's top of the second. Yeah. Right after, right after Ag was buzzed, uh, Sandra got plunked, and then and then Kuzman struck the next three guys out too. Banks, Hickman, and Hundley. Wow, that's some uh, jujitsu, motherfuckers. Tommy Ag, God, <laughs> so much pain. I really do feel bad. You live there. Ag hits a homer. It's New York. It's this expansion team. They got that stupid apple that probably pops up. Like they came out of nowhere. And also, they have these no, the awesome pitchers. There yet. Yeah, okay. All right, good. My dad used to reference but, this dude named Al Lewis Weiss. Had, had AG and Al Weiss, who had both been on the White Sox, and you know they got traded away because they weren't producing for the White Sox. AG was rookie of the year and didn't really do much after. Al Weiss was, you know, he was Al Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he had there were two games in Wrigley in the summer that year, two consecutive games where Al Weiss hit home runs. And those might have been his only home runs of the regular season. Yeah. And then I, he hit I, one in the World Series. Did he really? Off the off the Vivante yeah. Baltimore pitching staff. Yeah. It was um, uh yeah, I can see how why how deeply embedded my dad's hatred and everybody else was towards the Mets from that season. It just seemed like you're right about the horseshoe. Right. Felix Mion, was he on that team or is he on that later Mets team? No, he was on the Braves. Okay. Was Chico, oh, okay. Was Chico Escuela on that team? Was Chico Escuela? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and it was funny because that was the first year of divisional play. So yeah. right off the bat, as a kid, you know, you get your, like, your, they had the little map in the newspaper with where all the teams were. And like, these are the teams in the East and these are the teams in the West. And you don't yeah, have to be a San Diego is. You've never heard of it before, but they have a team now. Is that what they were doing? Right. Well, and part of it, too, was you don't have to be a cartographer to say, hey, Cincinnati and Atlanta are both east of Chicago and St. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> that was that, that was always a thing that the Braves and the Falcons, for, right, were uh, in, yeah. or in the West Division. And they were east of like most of the cities. So I, uh, I, I quickly did look up Al Weiss. Fork, you will be very pleased to learn. That yes, Al Weiss literally had two home runs in mm -hmm. 1969, and they were in back-to-back -back days against the Cubs, Good. July 15th and 16th. And one of them uh, at Wrigley, and one of they're both Mets victories in July. So that was like an annoying Mets team. That's like, what the fuck are they doing here? The first one was a one-run Mets victory too. So it even really the second one was a nine-to-five victory, but you know contributed. And probably at the time you're like, ah. No, it's July. They're just a nuisance. After that game, the Mets. Well, the Mets were fifty and thirty-seven, but the Cubs were fifty-eight and thirty-five. Yeah. From so we talked about it on August sixteenth. From August sixteenth, the Cubs went seventeen and twenty-six. The Mets went thirty-eight and eleven. Yeah, that's why they won by eight. So even if the Cubs didn't collapse, they may have lost the division by a game or whatever. Kind of like the twenty eighteen Cubs, where they didn't really collapse. Where they. We talked about it, so they did, but the Brewers couldn't fucking lose. So, right, and you know, so that was '69. So for 1970, because '70s another year we got to talk about a little bit, at least a little bit, uh -huh. because they basically they they don't completely run it back because they actually got they they tried to get like a real honest to goodness center field. There, they got Johnny Callison from the Phillies, um, but they traded away 
a guy that DeRocher loved, who was Oscar Gamble. Ooh. Um, and uh, they traded Oscar Gamble because the Wrigleys were not happy with the fact that he had white girlfriends. Yeah. Get yeah. out. Okay. Well, that seems like a common that was, theme. That was, yeah. a pre, that was a precursor to Bill Madlock. <laughs> but. The uh, um, 70 Cubs, did, they did have a five-game, their highs, they were five games out on June 13th. They were 10 games over, so not quite, but they were, you know, certainly in contention, right? Yeah. 10 games over on, June, think, 10 games over on June 40th, and their biggest lead was five on June 13th, so. And they were right. never and, more than six games behind, which didn't happen until the end of the season. Right, and there was another game late in the year where Stargell hit a Hit a resounding home run off Phil Regan. <laughs> really? At Wrigley, yeah. or is this one in Pittsburgh? At Wrigley, two years in a row, Stargell put one on the Sheffield off Phil Regan to flip a game. Wow! <laughs> I may have found it. Uh, yeah, top of the ninth. All right. <laughs> September twelfth, nineteen seventy. Cubs are yeah. 75 and 68 going in. Uh, they have a two run lead. All right. No, what is it? Uh, they're winning. Uh, no, they're actually losing, but Stargell pretty much iced the game, I think. Oh, that's what yeah. it was. Okay. I just remember. Well, and it was made more bittersweet by the fact that so the Tiger, so Stargell hits a two run homer to make it a two, a two one game to four one. I'm sorry. Yeah, and then uh, and then Bob Robertson hit a homer, but Jim Hickman did hit a three-run homer in the bottom of the ninth, so they lost by one. So somewhat similar, and it was another tough game because the Cubs were where were they in the standings at that point? Uh, in the nineteenth, seventy Cubs. Um, that was they were only three. They were actually only a game out after that even uh well they were a game out coming into that game and then two out after that game so fucking stargill right so yeah the cubs were kind of giving a tease like maybe they can maybe they right. can sneak in well yeah and the, uh the pirates won with 89 wins yeah you know, so the cubs had won 92 the year before mm -hmm. and then interesting they, they only won 84 and 70 during this run from 67 to 72, um, they only won 90 games once, just in 69. 87, yeah. 87, 84, 92, 84, 83, 85. Yep. Interestingly, the 71 Cubs, where their high point above 500 was higher than it was in 70. They were 13 games over at one point. Uh, on August 20th. However, the 71 Cubs never were in first place. So, you know, these are the types now, of teams that were unfamiliar to, like, Andy and I until recently, where they would actually be over 500 for multiple years in a row, even if they weren't well, that good. Well, the other, the other season, which was – it wound up being, like, the last year of the DeRocher Cubs was 73, and – that was when they did what they started to do a lot of later in the 70s, which was just roar out of the gate, build up a build up like a five or six game lead, and by the end of July, they were out. And even 
Yeah, was, actually, shit. The 73 Cubs had an eight and a half game lead on June 29th. Yeah. Even and, and they were six and they were 16 over on that date, which was their also their high water mark. So and that was that was a really terrible Mets team that won the division yeah. that year. The Cubs the Cubs were in contention up till like the last week of the season. That yeah. you know, just looking here, September 21st, they were two and a half games out and and five under five hundred. <laughs> so let you know wow. how great the 72 season was. <laughs> Wow. And that that 73 Mets team then beat the Reds in the playoffs and took yep. the A's to seven games. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yogi Berra was their manager. But that was the yeah. LCS where uh, Pete Rose and Bud Harrelson got into a fist of cups, right? For the, one of the few times World the Reds Series, didn't advance. And the World Series, Willie Mays lost, I think, two fly yeah. balls in the sun. Yeah. And my dad always talked about how – he always talked about Mays and DiMaggio, right? DiMaggio mm-hmm. – Quit, quit at his prime, like what he probably could have produced for a few years because, you know, he was a vain asshole. Uh, yeah. And then Mays just didn't know when to hang him up. And then there he was floundering around that World Series. Yeah. Sight. Well, Willie might have wanted to make a little money. He didn't have the Mr. Coffee <laughs> money. Right. <laughs> the Mets were going to pay him. He was going to play. And that kind so, of closed the chapter then, right? 73, that's it. So 73 wasn't, yeah, so, wasn't DeRocher, though, right? That was that was Whitey Lockman. Oh, oh shit. No, DeRocher, I, no. well, maybe 73. Was 73 the year DeRocher got fired? He got fired midway through the season. No, that's 72. Oh, yeah, 72. Okay, wow. Okay. Yeah, Whitey, Whitey Lockman actually gave him a bit of a dead cat yeah, bounce. Yeah, went all Mike Quaddy on him, 39 and 26. Yeah. Yeah. Leo was 46, 44, and one. Was Leo off uh, entertaining women in Lake Lawn Lodge that year? Was that the year that he took his week off? No, that, that was, 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 was Camp Virginia, right? and that was the 69. Good. Like, what a jag off. So, a, here's a, a guy who notoriously ran those players into the ground, made him play every day. But he got to fuck off for a week mm-hmm. and go to Wisconsin. <laughs> Just a historic asshole, like a highly successful, whatever. It's super competitive, you know, a little bit of, you know, in the crosshairs of history with the Giants and Dodgers in the 40, the 30s and 40s. Babe Ruth hated his balls, by the way. I mean, because he was a teammate of Ruth's, right? He, and Ruth accused him of stealing uh, his wallet or some shit. He had no yeah, scruples. And then, uh, oh, like, was it Ru- and then, Rivera? He's steal, stealing guys' gloves? <laughs> Mariano's brother? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, it came out much, much, much later that the fifty-one Giants were stealing signs with Herman Franks and the uh, Centerfield yeah. Bleachers doing all yeah. flash signs. Yeah, for a Speaking. while the Cubs had Bob Buell doing it, and it didn't do them any good. They still suck. <laughs> <laughs> during the College of Coaches. One of one of the coaches had Bob Buell working on stealing signs. Well, <laughs> say whatever you want about Whitey Lockman, but he never got to appear on the Donna Reed. Show Mr. Ed and the Beverly Hillbillies, and Leo got to do all of that. What a character, fucking Neurosher, Jesus. Be better or worse, I guess. So, uh, yeah, it, it almost seems like a Ditka quality where, like, they had all this talent and he was able to whip them into shape. But you know, unlike Ditka, he didn't reach the summit, and then kind of out, you know, outlived his well, welcome. Mike, 
my theory with Locke, with uh, DeRocher was he was always successful when he had teams that had guys that were more role players. And here he had a team full of stars. So he just figured he'd, he'd put his best players on the field every day and not think about tomorrow. Um, mm. You know, the one time he won the World Series with the Giants was 1954. And mm -hmm. everybody remembers Willie Moses' catch. But the actual hero of that World Series for the Giants was a pinch hitter named Dusty Rhodes, who I think hit three home runs in a four-game sweep. Wow. So I think Leo was a better manager. That's, with that's just ironic. He's using his bench in the World Series. He couldn't even use it for the 69 Cubs. Yeah. No, and Paul Popovich, Paul Popovich hit 300 that year. And, you know, the most playing time he got was early in the season in 69 because Beckert jammed his thumb. There was like a tag play or something, and Beckert jammed his thumb. He was out for about three weeks. And – he said in later on he said that he came back too soon uh his thumb wasn't fully healed um because beckert was i mean he was a good second baseman and he was an exceptional slap hitter he was just he would choke up on the bat and just poke the ball over infielders and was 71 or 72 he hit almost 340 doing that damn and he was he he was the guy before Bill Buckner, who was the cub that just nobody could strike out. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Mike and I grew up, you know, after this, and heard all the you know the glory, the glorious tales of the of the '69 Cubs and that era of Cubs. And um, you know, when you look at what they did, they were good, but they weren't that good. Like I said, they only won 90 games once. Um, and I can kind of see why when Dallas Green came, he was like, all right, it's enough of this, enough of glorifying these guys that didn't win shit. That's yeah. half your problem, is you were just wallowing in this in these glory days that weren't nearly as glorious as you'd like them to be. And the ironic thing is the Cubs have a current ownership who seems to still be infatuated with them. They're all the fucking statues. I know. You know, and I don't begrudge Billy Williams or Ron Sano or Ernie Banks, those oh, guys, man. but it's like, you know, move on. You actually had a team that won the World Series. The thing they never did. <laughs> maybe that's the, maybe those are the guys you should be making a bigger deal out of now. You know, and obviously they have incredible individual accomplishments. You know, there's all those Hall of Famers on that team in that run, so you can see why people liked them, but it's like they get, they get a lot of credit for being just pretty good. Yeah, I mean, as a um, team, individually, they were excellent. There were, you know, there were obviously there weren't enough. You know, well, were, and the and the, and the and the ships crossing the night is that like yeah, technically four Hall of Famers, but Banks was kind of mm. cooked by '69, right? He drove in 100 runs. Right, he drove 100 uh, runs because guys were just always on base. Yeah, yeah. So he was well past his prime, but like Santo was absolutely in his prime. Williams was definitely still in his prime. They had two Hall of Fame offensive players in their prime. Jenkins and, and yeah. Hickman, Hickman was an absolute monster in 70, and he had a really good year in 69 also. Yeah. So, you know, Jimmy Hickman, he he of the throw to 
or no, he hit the ball that uh, drove in Pete, that drove Pete Rose into Ray Fox. Yes, he did. Yeah. I knew yeah, that. I what I didn't know, and to Frank, the Forks point, Jim Hickman in 1970 had an OPS of 1.001. Nice. Holy fuck. Yeah. He murdered the ball in 70. Damn. 115 ribby. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and at some point in seventies, when I think the Cubs got Joe Pepitone, also he was on the sixth. Yeah, he's seventy was his first season. Yep. Yeah. Two hundred thirty-four um, plate appearances off the bench. Eight eleven OPS. And to the point of to the point of going back to between Banks being cooked and what I said earlier about DeRocher hating Banks, one of the things that DeRocher would do is. Like if Nolan Ryan were going to start for the Mets, Banks was in the lineup instead of Hickman. <laughs> he wanted to make sure Banks struck out four times because he'd never catch up to that fastball. <laughs> wow, nice. Was he just like in the way? Is that what it was? It wasn't personal. Banks was like was like like Banks like past his prime, and he's like this icon for the shitty team and. He's not even well, the best player. How on much the of team it was? And... How much of it too was? I would think Ernie's personality would great on a guy like Leo. Like, <laughs> oh, miss, right. The Mister Happy, everything's all right all the time. Kind well, of, also, kind of mindless know. platitudes about shit all the time. I could see it just driving Leo nuts. <laughs> and then when I when I envision Ernie, because thanks thanks to Marquis and the fact that they you know they won't apparently they won't pay for the rest of the rights to their own life of. Uh, library or uh, you know video library we only see ernie hit the 500th home run over and over and over again. right um i see him and it's the way you know he's 40 it was almost a 40 year old man but it reminds me of walter payton describing uh richard dent's ass as saying he's the only guy in the league who has to reach over his shoulder to get his wallet out of his pants that was kind of ernie like his ass is basically his shoulders by that point um, and it's too bad they can't dig up some actual footage so we could see this incredibly other, dynamic under- like a right. shortstop who was so shortstop. far ahead of his time, like, he was practically from another planet. You know, I brought this up to the, like, like my dad used to always say that in the forties and fifties, like Pete Ringley, the anti, like he was not a good baseball man, but he like he knew how to, uh, you know, market the ballpark and the team, and he was like the anti Bill Wirtz in that he obviously put the games on, on TV, but they had like they were like on all on the four channels apparently in the forties yeah. and fifties, not just WGN. So you know, he's, he's flooding flooding the market. <laughs> You know, but with w, WGN would tape over ball games. They so how do we that. not have like Ernie Banks at shortstop? I, I don't think I've ever seen footage. I've seen like fucking like I Trader or maybe <laughs> not, like I see guys from the '30s like in my video footage. I've never seen Ernie Banks make a, make a goddamn toss across from shortstop. Now that I think about it, I've seen photographs and that's it. Yeah. And if you want to see how he swung the bat as a young man, you can find his episode of home run derby on youtube yeah, yeah i've seen it it's you know it, but it, it's the, it's it's tra- it's not even unfortunate it's tragic to have a player who literally reinvented his but he reinvented the position so much that nobody could duplicate it until like a rod i mean he was just yeah. that far ahead yep and we i mean yeah we he, don't he, have he, hardly any way to experience it He's banging out like 42 homers where like little shit across town. Louis Aparicio is like getting all these plaudits for betting like 250 and yeah. like, you know, whatever. Well, it's funny. It reminds yeah. me of like Praz asking us because we were going on about Sean Dun- Dunstan, mostly me because I love Sean. And he's looking at his numbers. He's like, 
he's asking us like, "What the hell?" And I'm like, "You don't understand shortstops when we were kids. Yeah, were these emaciated little like Larry Boa, even was like even big after Banks. at shortstop, yeah. Johnny Lamaster and Mark Belanger and all yeah. these motherfuckers." In the late '60s, early '70s, Boston had Rico Petricelli. Okay, and Rico, I think Rico hit 41 year. Okay, and. But yeah, I mean, your standard shortstop, you had Mark Belanger, Don Kessinger, Bud Harrell. Yeah. You know, all these guys that weighed 160 pounds and wet. Tim Foley. Tim Tim Foley with those fucking glasses of his, he looked <laughs> like he looked like the guy that you went to high school with and he was a dick, but he was the first guy to get a car, so you hung out with him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tim Foley. <laughs> Uh, oh, fucked him fully. Um, <laughs> but he didn't yeah, spell his last name right. So yeah, you have all these banjo hitting shorts on and Concepcion, and these were the guys. Another that, one, and he was the best. Of, they, yeah. they were the best of the best, and Freddie yeah. Patek, and these. Yep, another one. All non-hitting shortstops. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, I feel like between what you said, the, you, the two that changed it were Ripken and Young. I was gonna say. You kind of go well, you before you mentioned Petroselli, you almost go from Banks to Ripken or and Yount, I guess you're right because yeah. Yount's but yeah, there's another like like Banks was like an anomaly because that shorts up before them, like weren't like Phil Rizzuto, it was like the same shit before Banks, and then like yeah. like outside of Petroselli, it seems like it went back to being shortstops being just stick figures, but you're right. Yount is a good, it's kind of an underrated example because I always think of Ripken, who won the rookie of the year in 82. But like Yount was a 19 year old, like three years earlier, that was mm-hmm. that Yount was the MVP in 82. Now that I think about it, um, as a shortstop, but so. I, I was it was so crazy to me that when A Rod hit his 40th home run with the Mariners, I don't even know what year that was, that the list of shortstops who had hit 40 home runs in a season was still two guys, it was just him and Ernie, nobody else had done it. And Ernie had done it like a half a century before. It was almost like it wasn't even. um, Yeah, A-Rod did it in 98. When did Ernie do it? 54? Well, he was MVP in 58 and 59. 58, 59. So So those were the two years. So 40 years. Fuck Leo. In 69, Petricelli hit 40. but Oh, you're right. I guess you're right. It was three. Maybe his third base though. Oh yeah. Okay. Or, no, like I think said, there. I think there probably was a third guy. You're just misremembering, Andy. On purpose, because fuck Rico Petrocelli. Well, here for a position, it says six and five. So there you go. Yeah, he might not have hit all yeah. forty as a shortstop. Got it. But um, yeah, because that that Red Sox team, they won the pennant in '67. They and yep. their their big bats were George Scott, Petrocelli. Uh, Yastrzemski and Conigliaro. Conigliaro. Hey, Conigliaro was on that team. That I before. Think, well, he got beamed that basketball. season. Okay, he got beamed that season. Um, but anyway, so you had Whitey Lockman for a few years, and then Jim Marshall, then Herman Franks, and yeah. that was when you get you'd have your June swoon years. So they roar out of the gate. And about midway through June, they would just run out of gas. Even like in like 74 and 75, which I've always like assumed were just like bleak seasons from beginning to end. Well, what was really funny for a couple of those years. Oh, yeah. 74 team won 77 games. So they weren't like yeah. total ass. 
Um, yeah, 74 was the last year with Billy Williams, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at 73. The, uh, no, no, 74, the, they were 60, they were, that was a 96 team. loss team. So I don't think they were in that discussion. No, 74. 74 was the last year with Jenkins. And one of Jenkins' last starts, I don't know who he got taken out of the game and he was throwing bats onto the field. He was George Bell before. Or, oh, Andre no, Dawson. Dawson. He was Dawson before Dawson. George Bell was the best part of that video for me. He was the guy that was like trying the, to get Essien out there. Well, he was uh, in the <laughs> next circle. He, he looked at Dawson. He looked at Essien. He looked at Dawson. He looked at Essien. And I fear at some point said, you got to go get your superstar before he's suspended <laughs> for a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the 75 Cubs that bounced back with 75 wins, they were, they did have a four game lead, their high point on Tuesday, May 13th. Yeah. Um, and they weren't, <laughs> they were 10 games over 500 uh, two days later on the 15th. So as far as collapses go, bit of a mouse fart, but yeah, they weren't totally horrible. But 76, I think those are the years you're talking about. It was almost identical. Same yeah. thing, 76. Oh, they never led, sorry. And they were three games over on April 14th. They just somehow managed to be mediocre all year and go to a 75-87 record. That was when the sporting news had the Cubs M squad on the cover. And Not the was, Latin Connection? I'm sorry, I'm thinking no, Baseball the Digest. The Latin Connection was Baseball Digest. And that was a couple of years later. That was uh, DeJesus and Trio. Yep. But no, the M squad was... Morales, Monday, oh. and Madlock. In 76. 76. Yeah, because Madlock, because Monday was gone in 77, but that was Morales's all-star year in 77. Yeah. Which okay. All right. Which I think we we talked about at great length when we dedicated a whole episode to 77. That team had I mean, that really epitomizes collapse in some ways, the 77 team, because they had a lot of all-stars, guys that Nobody, a lot of guys probably never heard of at this point. I mean, we did, but they had a bunch of guys that got on heaters. But those mid 70s teams, what used to be funny was every year that the second half of the year, Ray Burris would just catch fire. <laughs> and then there was one year where he won like 10 games in the first half. We're like, okay, here we go. And then he fell apart in the second half. <laughs> but uh, let, let's get out of the Let's get out of the quagmire of the DeRocher Cubs. All right, so I got one year? more yeah. stat. One more stat before we move on, <clears throat> because while I'm googling, I found this. <clears throat> this is uh, Christopher Kampka tweeted this out a couple of years ago. He he goes, "This is the list of 40 home run seasons by National League shortstops when Ernie Banks retired, and it's Ernie in 55, 57, 58, 59, and 60." And then he said, "It is still the entire list. No National League shortstop has hit 40 home runs." Other than Ernie holy Banks. shit, so incredible! Go. Wow, Dansby around the clock. <laughs> you gotta start letting him bat from second base. I think if he's gonna hit 40, <laughs> you know, they don't pay him to play uh, offense. <laughs> 170 million dollars, but no, it's reason to surf first. So where do we need? Where do we go next? Then do we go to seventy-seven and for a brief? Well, time? I mean, again, if it, for a deep dive, there's an you know you could just go to Spotify and Google uh, or well, like search for uh, right on the post here. Nineteen seventy-seven Cubs. Uh, I'm sure it'll be one of the top hits um, because who else is talking about the seventy-seven Cubs? But I, I just, I just for posterity, I do want to note 
they were fucking 25 games. I know we talked about it in that episode, but again, they were 25 games over on June 28th. I'm pretty sure that outside of 69, none of those DeRocher era teams were 25 games over at any point. So in, Their last day in first place was August 6th. I was, uh, yeah, and, their, and what was their high point? What was the, like first place lead? Uh, eight, eight and a half. half on June 29th. Yeah. 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 Eight and a half. June. Yeah, it took a, took a little while for the Phillies to realize they were the Phillies. In 77, right? Because yeah. the Phillies at that point, they were defending. I believe they were defending. Yeah. They, they won their first division in 76. They it used to always be like Pittsburgh, I felt like, that would like lose to the Reds. And then Philly lost the Reds in 76. But you're right. That was the beginning of their dynasty. So they, they, they ran past the Cubs before losing to the Dodgers. Uh, and that team, the Cubs finished 20 games out. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. First place wow. on August 6th, and you finished 20 games out of first place. <laughs> Good hustle. It's hard to do that. <laughs> Definitely a collapse, but but also a team that nobody really – I mean, it's hard to say that. I mean, Fork, you were there. I know we talked about it, and I'm sure you could go back. But like 25 games over in late June, you had to believe, right? Oh, yeah. We did. And – you know, it just everybody stopped hitting, and you know, yeah. I, I love that the high water mark was like right before the All Star game, where they got to send you know all the like. I, I think of Jerry Morales, but there are probably other. Madlock was there, deservingly. Madlock, no, right? Was he on the seventy seventy? Okay, was he? I think he was gone. Uh, no, he was seventy four, seventy five, seventy six. No, they had that fucking Bobby Mercer. And yeah, and Steve Antaveras and his yeah. Manny uh, Trio, hairline, Jerry his hairline Creations wig, Rick yeah. Russell, Bruce Souter. Well, I think I mentioned this on the this seventy-seven episode. I think I mentioned this on the seventy-seven episode that Steve Antaveras got hit in the face with ground balls fairly often, <laughs> and certainly often enough that. The, uh, Steve, knock it down your chest, not your nose. <laughs> that the organist at Wrigley Field, whose name was Vance Fothergill, and did the most amazing rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game I've ever heard, by the way. But All right. Vance, Vance would actually play the theme from Rocky when Anaveros came up to bat. <laughs> wow. But he would do like this Vegasy take me out to the ball game. <laughs> nice. Vance. Unbelievable. It was so great. <laughs> All right. So Interestingly, I was going to say, so if that's our 1977 layover, then we are off to the 1985 Chicago Cubs. Yep. And uh, yeah. after the, uh, the agonizing end to the uh, 84 season which the 80 we talked where we did a whole thing on, yeah on the 80 we're both at basketball camps during the 13 game losing streak yeah, and the 85 cubs but the i was gonna say a minute for the 84 cubs oh. um you know just an amazing season i do feel like the 84 we remember the 84 season more fondly than we remember like the 2003 season the 03 season the the postseason the last Three games seems to basically ruined everybody's memories. They, they were some, they were somehow particularly more jarring than the last three losses in '84. Somehow, even with the Garvey homer, yeah. somehow. 
the thing with 84 was that was the first time since the first time since an atomic bomb was dropped on Japan that the Cubs were in the postseason. Yeah. Right. Yes, 39 years. Yeah, as Steve Goodman put it. <laughs> yep. That's right. But uh so yeah, that was the big thing then was that was the first time. Yeah. It was and, crazy. You know, for our for like two generations. My father became a Cub fan in 46. So he never saw the Cubs in the he just missed the boat. Yeah. He just missed the boat. And and you now know, what's so, interesting too is that Frank, uh, if I could, in '84, you were no longer living in Chicago. Probably right. really grateful the Cubs still did have lights, but and they were on cable, I guess. And right, right. I mean, you were yeah, able to follow them. They were on cable, and I was able to like go into a bar because I was, I was working, I was working like a second shift gig at that point, so I was able to go into a That's bar perfect. near my house that had a satellite dish, I could watch the Cubs play, and then go to work. Oh, that's right. You were in Staten Island. You probably didn't have cable in the city in 84, no, right? You, Island, you needed not a have dish. Cable. You, you still needed, needed a dish. The dish. Yeah. 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 That And that was great, too, because that was back when dishes were still pretty new, and you would have – I don't know if you guys remember, on co- in college basketball games, they would have this thing called Packer on the Dish – before the official CBS broadcast would take place, Billy Packer would actually do a little show that only oh. people with sandwiches could watch. Right. Good for Billy. <laughs> so they they would switch on the WGN and you would get like you could get the raw feed sometimes yeah. before the game started. And I unfortunately a lot of times you would just get whatever was on WGN before the Cubs were on. Every so often you get a raw feed, and that was great. But I kept waiting for like some drunken ramble from Harry, but yeah. that never happened. We yeah. we got our we, we had to get a satellite dish because you grew up on a farm, and I think we got ours in '87. But um, the first spring after we got it, they the GN was doing a uh, spring training game, and we got a live feed of Harry. It was it was great. It was Harry and Arnie basically panning the camera is panning the crowd looking for broads with big cans and harry is basically deciding whether or not they are worthy of being cut to before a half inning it was amazing (laughs) and then harry's spotting them and trying to direct arnie to get the camera to the right spot oh no the third baseline oh it was about six rows back no not her her yeah that one it was great it was the best that yeah that Sounds like I, I got to meet Harry in his bar one night, and yeah, that was pretty much it. I I was with a friend, and he had his wife with him or a girlfriend at the time, whatever, and she was very pretty, and that's what got Harry's attention. So we were oh, able to buy him a beer and uh, told us told the stories for about twenty minutes. So anyway, um, so yeah, 80, yeah. Like you said, they come out of nowhere, first play in 39 years, and now it's like all of a sudden there's demand in Wrigleyville. All of a sudden it's a destination. Mm-hmm. Cubs have Rick Sutcliffe on opening day. It's like we have we have a young shortstop replacing the decrepit matchstick figure that's Larry Boa, uh, and they get off to a good start. And they, they June Brian Light, Dayette. Met, uh, Brian Dayette, when they when they traded Henry Cotto and picked up Ray Fontenot and Ryan Dayette, absolutely. Yeah, they really this team is prime. 
They're primed, and they got off the good start, like you said. So this, the high point, like from June sixth to June eleventh, they had a, a six-game winning streak. We talked about it in Indy Five. Just to quickly recap, I just remember on the Monday, June tenth game. It was on Monday Night Baseball in Montreal. And they came back on Jeff Reardon, whose nickname was the Terminator. And Tim McCarver made it a point to say that after the Cubs torched his ass, he was the exterminator. Hey, Tim, not bad. They won again the next night. Don't they do the and don't that, exterminators and terminators do the same thing? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah, it was a it sounded clever at the time. Yeah, well. I don't even know if was Howard <laughs> Cosell would have been in the booth there. Monday night baseball was a thing. It was, it was never as popular as Monday night football, but Tim took a lot I of distinctly- ones off the mask. So. I distinctly remember. So that was Monday, June 10th. And then the next night, the Cubs win again, June 11th. They're 35 and 19. They're four games up. And, uh, you know, we're starting to get cocky. We won it the year before. And then they would lose the last two of that series to take a four game split. And then the Cardinals would come to town. I mean, basically, this is the start of the 13 game winning streak. I'm just going to say that. I remember how angry my dad was at Ron Rappaport, sometimes uh writer, because at the end of that 13-game losing streak, Ron Rappaport was like saying how no team that had ever lost this many games in a row had ever finished 500. We're like, fuck that. They might not make the playoffs. You can't tell me they're not going to finish 500 because the beginning of the 13-game losing streak, they were 35-19. and 19. At the end of it, they were 35-32, and 32, and then they would, of course – uh, by the end, you'd have guys like Jay Baller making their debuts and Dave Angle. They they were a 77-win team, mediocre, but for a team that was that high, uh, flying that close to the sun in mid-June um, and had, you know, coming on the heels of a division championship in the first postseason appearance in 39 years. And they have pretty, the entire, uh, <laughs> the entire rotation was on the DL at once, right? At, at one point, Which yeah. didn't make any sense yeah. considering, I mean, Sutcliffe was a Adonis, basically. Nobody took better care of themselves than Rick. <laughs> And uh, Dennis Eckersley, <laughs> clean living. Nothing right. going on with Eck. Same with Steve Trout. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, when did Steve fall off the exercise bike? Was that that year? That was, it, that was, yeah, it may have been 85, 80. Like, who could have seen any of it coming? <laughs> not even new acquisition Larry Sorensen and his missing second R uh, could shore up the uh, the, the starting <laughs> rotation. all the R's so. he needed it was uh, it was weird. They plummeted, and it was like. Then we, were, you know, we talked about it, you know, with with Prez the other day. Like, until you know, for years between when we started coming into consciousness in the you know nineteen eighty, let's say, they would make these random playoff appearances and then just go back to sucking, which they did in eighty five, and they the eighty six was horrible, eighty seven, eighty eight. They they rise back up in eighty nine, but they you know they weren't really collapsing at all. They were either bad or they were good, and they made the playoffs. Until I mean, unless there are any other points in '85 that we want to pick over, it was, it was a pretty, pretty obvious collapse when you have a 13-game losing streak in mid-June. I don't, know, I can't remember much else from that season after that. Um, well, when did they give? When did they a... give up? When do we think they gave up on the season? Was it when? I gotta look this up real quick. Um, I mean, was it August? Was it August 13th, 1985, when they when Dallas finally said, "All right, we're out of," when he released Larry Boa? Was that, you know, the signal to the fans that it's over? <laughs> <laughs> what was Larry hitting? It was, it was astounding. Uh... Rick, what were you going to offer? He was in 246. He, well, he, he signed out with the Mets and hit 105 for the Mets. I remember he was with the Mets, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I used to make trips to Chicago like once a year to catch a couple games. 
And I don't remember if it was 85, but one of those years, you, you remember how the Cubs parking lot used to just be behind a chain link fence along the left field wall. The player parking lot. And there was no such thing as a fan parking player lot. Parking. No. Right. The player parking lot. So you could see the players going to their cars and yeah. the whole bit. And we were walking by and Scott Sanderson came out and he was walking over to his car and a lot of the Cubs, you know, they had some deal going with a car dealer where they do some gripping grins or something. And they'd get a, they'd get a loaner car for the season and they'd have dealer plates on. And I don't know if it's still the case, but I know that in Illinois back then dealer plates had a DL designation on them. Like it's so like DL, mm. DL along the left column. And uh, so Sanders, Sanderson's walking to his car, and I could see he, he had the dealer plates. I was like, hey, Sandy, you're on the DL so much they gave you special plates? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't get any support from his teammates. They were all laughing. <laughs> nah, you're right, because they're probably pissed off. Really, Scott? What is it this time? Uh, I was, yeah, uh... was going to tell the same. I'm sure I told the story in, in the 85. Remember this crap, but no, I, I distinctly remember that late in the year before the Cubs get, got, finally gave up on Larry, he started wearing glasses. Yes. And Harry was like, "Oh, look at this! Wearing glasses, Steve. I'll bet the that. I'll bet it, the ball looks like a beach ball to him now." And he struck yeah. out. And I just so much wanted <laughs> Steve to go. Well, Harry, he can't hit a beach ball either. <laughs> well. Fortunately, they, they got what they could get out of Larry Boa, and they got Ryan Sandberg. So, you know, sure. I, I got nothing bad to say about Larry Boa's Cub tenure. Oh, you should listen to us more often then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little, little piece of shit. <laughs> Larry Boa did collect over 2,000 major league hits, believe it or not. He did it before he joined the Cubs. I didn't know, I didn't know he batted 10,000 times. <laughs> But yeah, at one point, wasn't the entire rotation on the DL yeah, at the same time? That's what that's what Andy said. Yeah, at one point, they just they just needed Sanderson to show them the way. <laughs> Which way's the DL? They got they got four starts out of Jay Baller, eight out of yep. Steve Engel, seven out yep. of Derek Bethello, Reggie Patterson yep. made five, yep. and Johnny Abrego made five. Oh, and Larry Gurra made four starts for him. And and of How, course, uh, that should have made up for it. That was, look at that. That's a that's a murderous Larry the prodigal Cub. Oh the yeah, Cubs yeah. I've, I've talked about it before. Is that like one of my memories is like watching an NBC game of the week where Larry Gura, who I believe was the 1980 American League Cy Young Award winner, when he uh, took the Royals to to the World Series before losing to Dallas Green's Phillies. Um, and I remember hearing stories. Oh, he used to pitch for the Cubs in the 70s, and then he comes back and just like. Like he could not get off the mound. It just it was just dreadful. Just eighty five was so bad. And you mentioned Steve Engel, all those guys like making their major league debuts. It was uh, it turned to dust so fast. It was like it was almost breathtaking. No wonder Jim Fry hated the farm system so much that he blew it up himself. Right, and they, they sabotaged my eighty five season. Larry Gura was uh, won eighteen games in nineteen eighty and finished sixth in the Cy Young oh, uh, okay. so, uh, But it, then, just three years later, he led the American League with eighteen losses. Yeah, they got to be pretty good to lose eighteen games. Yeah. Turns out Larry proved he didn't really. Um, yes, he finished his career with the Cubs 
with those uh, those four starts, he pitched in five games. He was 0-3 with a tidy 8.41 ERA. Yeah. Yeah, the 1980 American League Cy Young was everybody's favorite visibility. Oh, Stoney. Yeah, 25-game winner. How did I blow that? How's the how's the it's what you do? Yeah, a girl just merely led the Royals, the expansion Royals to the to the series. Yeah, Stoney won twenty. Second to last guy to win twenty five. Yeah, he wrecked his arm throwing nothing but curveballs at. Correct. So the right, uh, so I'm just gonna say so the Cubs their brief flirtation with excellence in 1984. Yeah, they would not. Finish 500 again until the miracle uh, 1989 Cubs, which, as we've discussed, should have been a not uh, not dynastic, but at least a perennial contender. Yeah, it should have set up a, a long run of of uh, competence. Instead, they wouldn't win. They wouldn't finish 500 again until 1993. Yes, when and that was had, not a collapse. When everybody had Le fever fever. 93 was the again for us kids uh, fork. That like we're born in 71, 70, both born in 72, I believe. Uh, the 93 Cubs team was the first team in our lifetime to finish 500 and not make the playoffs. Because we only did two. I mean, yeah, I get technically 73, 74 were over 500, but that was, you know, they for just 73 missed the was, playoffs, we were never. Uh, they were finished fourth. They didn't. Yeah. They only finished 500 because a, a mediocre team, the, a mediocre uh, team got hot in hell in September. Try to save Lefevre's job. It didn't even work. So the, the 1993 NL East, the Phillies won 97 games, the Expos won 94, and the Cardinals won 87. But how about this? So, oh, my God. Think about how many bad teams there were, and there were a lot. Because over in the West, the Braves, they, they, how about in the West? The Giants won 100, Dusty's Giants won 103 games and didn't make yep. the playoffs. That's the right. That's when we decided so it was the, time for a wild card. So that year, the Marlins... Well, it's already the been first decided. year of the Marlins. Yes, they Marlins lost, and Rockies ninety-three. They lost ninety-eight games. The Mets lost one hundred and three. Yeah. yeah, the Rockies lost ninety-five, and the Padres lost one hundred and one. Well, we, we talked about it too. The Rockies and the Marlins were expansion teams in ninety-three, and uh, Dusty, of course, in his first season with San Fran, won one hundred and three games and didn't make the playoffs because he didn't win his division and he lost by one game. And it was the first time in baseball history that one team failed to record a victory over another team. And it was when the Braves swept the Rockies for the entire season, yeah. including like the last day of the season. So Dusty just couldn't buy a break in 93. Yeah, there was one year, maybe 74, where the Cubs went 1-11 and against the Reds. Okay. <laughs> the Cubs won danger. 74 75 one of the big red machines that's right but it never otherwise happened obviously it never happened before 69 because you're playing each other god knows how many times but yeah andy did you unearth something else or just laughing at the historical ineptitude of the 74 cubs going one and 11 against the reds Uh, i was just laughing at mitch trubisky frantically trying to keep the make sure the bears get the number (laughs) you're watching the game to the patriots (laughs) Um, Mitch is finally paying off (laughs) that's great I've never been watching that game that's awesome Um, yeah so 93 not a collapse but an unusual team that finished over 500 doesn't make the playoffs but they were never in position to collapse because they just got hot late the 94 job only won 49 games yeah 
Then again, the season ended. Uh, right. Far and then, like, they only lost 64. And then, like, 93, 95, also not a collapse. And then also the second time now that they went yeah. 500 but didn't make the playoffs, but the opposite of a collapse because, as we put discussed, they had, because of the strike in 94 and trying to realign the schedule, they had a quirk where their last 14 or 15 games were at home, and they almost fucking pulled it off. And they so, didn't because they were mediocre. One of my roommates was very upset when the Cubs fired Jim LaFever after the 93 season. Couldn't believe that you could fire a coach, fire a manager after he finally got you over 500. And then, of course, we, but but that set up the wonderful uh, Tom Treblehorn era where he, he got on a soapbox in front of a firehouse. And, yes. Uh, but well, that then, that his ill-fated uh, one season in the sun led to the Jim Riggleman era, one of the rare Cub managers to last five seasons. And the first year of the Riggleman era was the never say die 95 Cubs. <laughs> Great who, team. Who just kept not getting eliminated in like the last, um, yeah. I'm going to look it up here, how many days of the season. They were hanging on a thread and they just wouldn't lose from. Uh, kind so of the opposite of a collapse. Frankly. So 95 is the. F- It's is that the, the year season the, Bre- the Brewers changed leagues. Is that right? No, that no, no that was until '98. Oh, '98. Okay. okay, so nothing happened in '95 other than we had a lockout. Uh, yeah, no, other than that. other than it was the '94 is supposed to be the first year of realignment. So the Rockies and Marlins joined in '93 with the two with the four division format. '94 was actually the first year of the six division format, but the strike didn't. Right. We didn't see it. So '95 was the first year we got to see the wild card in baseball and shit. Okay, which well, is that's funny right. so because the '95 because that's what the Cubs the 90, were hanging on to. Because the '95 Cubs would have won the old NL East in '95 because all the teams that made the playoffs that's were right. old NL West teams. Yeah, fucking realignment screwed them. Right. The Rockies made it, the Braves made it, the Reds made it, and the Dodgers made it. Because on Friday, September 22nd, the the Cubs are 66 and 69, and they're 15 games out of first place. And then they wouldn't lose again until the 30th of September. They won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in a row, including with the Astros just trying to eliminate them. They beat them the first two games in a four game series on walk offs. Yeah. Yeah. Then they lost their last. Last two games and had to call. I was at the Saturday game. They jumped out that one too. It was never say die. Yeah, they lost. They lost nine. They the the two games they lost at the end of the season. They lost nine to eight and eight to seven. Yeah, crazy. Just so crazy. We're like, here Baseball we go. was back. Look, we got yeah. we got something here. This this uh, yeah. our our, uh, our skinny little manager. You know, <laughs> looking all handsome in the corner of the dugout. Well, yeah, I said well, this the other time. Got I skinny little manager now, so that's right. Even skinnier. Riggleman's yeah. like portion. Yeah, that '95 team was like the dog that kept rallying on its last ride to the vet, so they kept going. It was back. fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They have a special place in all our hearts. They're not, you know, a real team, not a real contender. Right. You know, they were the, the strike played into it. Uh, it does lead into the next season, though. By the way, that's the that 1996 was the year I moved to Chicago. So all of a sudden, I'm going to like 20 games. So I have a lot of distinct uh, memories of games in which I probably didn't black out. Uh, but I insist on putting this team in the collapse because they were otherwise just typically tribune-esque mediocre from beginning to end, except this is Riggleman's second season. Now, you got Sammy Sosa, who broke his wrist on August 1st uh, when Mark Hutton hit him. Yeah. He had a 40-homer season. Um, they had, uh, you know, Jaime Navarro had a nice year. They, they, but they were mediocre. But somehow... 
they couldn't quite and they never were it never I don't consider them a truly contending team. I'm just gonna I just want to point to the game on Tuesday, September 17th. The Cubs are five games out. So they're done, you would think, but they're chasing the Cardinals. And you never know. You can sweep the Cardinals, right? And I remember watching this game in my new apartment in the city. Spent a whole summer going to Cubs games, wasting my money, my own money, a real job, blah, blah, blah. Games in Bush, and it's Donovan Osborne. And I forget who's pitching for uh, yeah, Frank, Frankie Castillo the year before that near no hitter. I only point to late in the game, though, because Sandberg, Ryan Sandberg had come out of retirement. Um, he was, you know, he was never, he was neither of our favorite player, Andy, but he was the greatest player that we saw as kids, like his whole career. And he retires unexpectedly, he comes back and has this weird season where he, he, what is he, he hits one of the years, he hits a lot of homers and he hit, doesn't hit for average or whatever, but like he's only showing flashes. But the game is one to one, first game of the series, coming to five games out, top of the eighth inning. Um, Grace gets a hit and fucking. Old ass Ryan Sandberg hits a three, it's a two run homer. Cubs go up three to one. Uh, get out of the inning. You could take you're better at reading those box scores than me because I'm almost overcome with just disappointment because I was like sitting on my couch going, They're gonna do it. You know, I know they're five back on September 16th, but holy shit, there's Sandberg that's like it's yep. gonna happen. And then what happens in the bottom of the eighth? Another legend on the other asshole. So, the bottom, so uh, answers bottom of the eighth, Riggleman leaves Castillo in, so he's still pitching. And um, Mike Gallego singles to left. But then he gets uh, Royce Clayton to fly out. So now the wheels are spinning and wheels are turning and Riggleman's head and he goes to a, his lefty Bob Patterson who was busy, get out the, who? busy in the bullpen fixing everybody's gloves. Um, he gives up uh, back-to-back triples. Yeah, I know, but who is, he, who is Bob Patterson being brought into face? Talk about some old balls, Ozzy Smith. Who never, you know, who never and you was know that's a the hitter. move, right? You make Ozzy bat left-handed. You only ever hit. We just hit the one fucking homer left-handed, right? The one off uh, Tom Needenfuer in the playoffs. Is that the only one he ever hit? Yes, is it's that, not that the only one? Is that the only one? one of like six that he ever hit. So that's like a literal thing. Like he never did it. He triples. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it was his first one actually. Ray Langford follows up and he triples. So Gallego yeah. scored on the on the first one to make it three to two, and then Ozzy scores on the next one. Uh, so now it's time to bring in the great Turk Wendell, and he gets Ron Gant to ground out. So we're like, okay, well it's tied. We'll get out of this. We'll score in the night. You know, it'll be fine. And then Brian right. Jordan, uh, you know the why not the safety from the Falcons, right? Two way player uh, hits a two run homer, and um, yeah, they're down five to three in the ninth. I think, uh, and in yeah, comes and my, former Cub Dennis Eckersley to nail the door down, and he does his old ball. And he is totally at the end of his line. So, I think earlier that season, uh, Robin Jennings had beaten him on a walk off at Wrigley on the hit. He was Larusa. This is Larusa's first year as the Cardinals manager. They would go to the playoffs. They would actually come within one game of the World Series. They were up three games to one to the Braves. Yeah, and then but, they had, uh, this is the and then they had to beat uh Maddox Glavin and Smoltz. Correct. And Which is do. like the math. But my, my point is that this is a, this is like the team that the mediocre Cubs find them. So this is why I consider this it's a it's a small collapse. But I consider it a collapse because yeah, it's kind of a mediocre team, but you know what? 
they hadn't gotten eliminated. It's mid-September, and there's a chance. This is the first of a three-game yeah. series, and all of a sudden, your old legend, your old middle infielder legend, like blasts a two-run homer. It's like holy shit! Like what's going on here? And then their old middle infielder legend, like on, although you're right, Ozzy, that didn't tie the game. They needed Langford to do it, and you know, and but that was it. It's so like the whole season, as far as the Cubs were in contention for like. 45 minutes yeah. in 1996. Well, and it was, was their, as soon as Sandberg Homer in, in, after uh, That loss was their third in a row. Um, it dropped them to um, dropped them under 500, 74 and 74. So they were losing coming into that game. Okay. And yeah. they would play 14 more games, and they would win two of them the rest of the season. So they finished that season um, two, two and fourteen. And then, do we remember how they started the nineteen ninety seven season? Frank, any recall? Yeah, didn't they lose a bunch of games? And wasn't that the Eric Young couldn't win? Nope. But they did lose a bunch of games. Oh, and fourteen, you might recall. Right. So. If you, so the last 16 games of the 96 season, the first 17 or the first 14 games of the 97 season, the Cubs went two and 28. And Jim Rickle would manage yeah. for how many more seasons? Uh, the rest of 97 and then 98 and then 99. Yeah. That, it's I mean, good that standards are so high. Hey, look how so, long! Look how long we had to write out David Ross. Well, uh, five seasons. Five, no Cub managers managed more than five seasons since Leo. By the way, so in our lifetime, it's never happened. Uh, Ross merely tied Riggleman and Madden, but yeah, as far just to put the '96 Cubs to to to, to bed, uh, and and further uh, justify my insistence that they be including the collapses for that 45 minutes when between Sandberg hitting that homer and then uh, Ozzy answering and the rest of them. And then they're that and going, losing the next, what going two and 14 after or in the midst of that, um, that, that mediocre team, but they qualify as a collapse, but it is interesting to know next season they go in and they go in 14. So notable because that would be part of a larger Jim Ringelman grouping Right, Andy. Yeah. So the which two will, the, which which will lead us to our our final collapse. Yeah. I can tell Frank's getting tired because you know he's old and shit. So <laughs> we're almost there. Well, and he's an hour uh, ahead of us too. So yeah, he's even tired. And and I donated platelets today. So oh, that's right. Good for you. <laughs> you know, donating platelets and fucking having to rehash all this shit. That's like it's yeah. hazardous to your health. He needs a purple heart. <laughs> the uh so then you know obviously the 98 cubs had that ridiculous uh ridiculous season i don't know if you guys heard carrie wood struck out 20 guys in a game get out um, they have video of that yeah sammy sammy hit what 66 home runs <laughs> stuff happened that year so they come Stories. back and they come back Stories. in 99 and we're they're gonna build on that on that success and um let's see they how it, honestly, it's a lot like '85. The '99 Cubs, a lot like '80. Same thing. Like, although you know, they were nine games over on June eighth, 
but they were never a factor in their division. They weren't in first place in the division after April 9th. Oh, okay. But let's see. Sounds like I have a better argument for 96. On June 8th, they were... Where were they in the wild card, though? Well, they had the third best record in the National League on June 8th. They were the wild card team. Only Houston, who was just uh, uh, a game ahead of them, had a better record. So here we go. We're in good shape. The magic of the year before is uh, is taking place. All right. Even though even though they trot Gary Gaetti's old balls out to the hot a, which corner. Which was a brilliant idea. A guy who got off yeah. of waivers. Um, that's a guy even though, should, even know, though like, he's like Scott years Sanders. Old. Bring him back. Yeah, and even though it's like Scott Sanders and Brad, where's the other guy? Yeah, Brad Woodall, were like in your opening day, in like your your first week's rotation. I maybe I couldn't see the signs again. I you know, but they were nine over in June, and it kind of felt like he still had Sammy. Uh, you know, they were, yeah, not really though. <laughs> uh, let's see. So that June 9th game in Arizona. Was that the year that Sosa had almost as many home runs as the rest of the Cubs combined? Uh, that'd be 2001, probably. We just talked about that with Mike. Because yeah. okay. he, he did have uh, 87 more RBIs than the next closest guy, which was R- Ricky Gutierrez, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Sammy's all one season. Something else. These are all names for the sidewalk outside the ballpark. Ricky right. Gutierrez. It's fucking A. But 99 was his second consecutive 60 homer season. I mean, they had Sammy. I mean, I think Henry wasn't quite as effective. I can't even, like, offhand. They probably still had Blouser's contracts and Trot and Gaetti out there. Kerry Wood blew his arm out and screamed, you know, he wasn't even there at all. He blew his arm game. out. They brought him back too soon for the playoffs in yeah. 98. Right. So, on the, uh, so, you know, their, their high watermark was the 8th of June. And on the 9th, they lost a, a, a uh, nail biter, eight to seven to the Diamondbacks. Right, they almost came back against on Randy, Randy Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, yeah. They're down eight to one in the eighth, and here's what happened in the eighth. Sammy greets Randy in the eighth with a home run. Then Glenn Allen Hill doubles. Mickey Morandini triples. Henry Henry Rodriguez walks. Benito Santiago singles. Scores Mickey. So then they uh, they bring in Byung Hyung Kim, and uh, Grace flies out. Tyler Houston doubles, scores uh, Henry Rodriguez. Roosevelt Brown strikes out. Then Manny Alexander is up, and uh, Byung is so intimidated by Manny, he throws a pass ball, scores a run. No, it yeah, scores a run. And then Manny singles to uh, to cut it to one, and there are two on for Sammy. With a chance to uh, give him the lead, and what do you think Sammy does? Struck out. Sammy struck out, and the Cubs lost. And that was no ordinary loss. Uh, at, the Cubs were uh, going into that game; they were thirty-two and twenty-three. Why did I think that game ended on Lance Johnson getting picked off at first? That was a different game. That happened. Okay. Maybe the next day. Okay, my bad. No. That happened. That was Arizona, though, right? I thought so. 
whatever. By the way, by the way, listeners, jot these names down for your immediate for your ultimate grid or immaculate grid. That's right, Lance Johnson for sure because he was, I believe, he was a Cardinal, he was a White Sox, he was a Met. Uh, Andy and I, Andy and I unearthed that one year for the Mets. He had he led the league in hitting, or he had led the league in hits. Yeah, he had one really good year. For the Mets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One dog. So the, that loss, the Cubs had won two in a row, and they got to nine over. They would lose uh, eleven of their next twelve. And then if you uh, let's see, we zip ahead all the way until. Where am I going here? Uh, if you go down all the way to Tuesday, September. No, I don't want to do that. Sunday, September 12th. Between uh, the June the 9th and September the 12th. Yes. The Cubs went 24 and 54. They played 30 games under 500 in a 78 game span. It was the second time under Jim Riggleman that they had yep. a where they had a a flurry of games where they finished 30 where they were 30 games under 500. Which I think is a perfect way to end, um, remember this collapse, discussing these last two sort of mouse farts of collapse. They were nowhere near as epic as 69 or, um, you know, 2019 or this year. Uh, They were mediocre teams, but they also represent, they're both, they're both encompassed in these two separate eras where, as you say, the Cubs went 30 games under 500 in a half a season under the same manager, like two collapses, yeah. as it were, uh, in one regime. So if nothing else, I think that might be the ultimate uh, testament to Jim Riggleman's time as the Cubs. Took him to the playoffs once and uh, encountered like two breathtaking collapses. With, you know, you're not going to get more than two. It was the second one that cost him his job finally. But not before the motherfucker put five years in, which uh, puts him up there with Joe Madden and David Ross. Right. And Ross, in in 21, Ross was one Frank Schwindel, I think it was a double, a game-winning double away from being the first manager in baseball history to preside over three, ten or more game losing streaks in the same season. That win broke up like what the Cubs (laughs) lost, like 14 out of 15. But the Franks' win was parked right in the middle of that, and it kept it from happening to Dave. Oh. And they didn't all happen after the sell-off. The first two happened before it. Right. That's so, they caused the sell-off. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this, I think this will be easy. So the thing we did at the end of the of the last the other version of this, we compared which was worse: the last, this most recent collapse, or these other years. Yep. Um, so 1969, what was worse? The 1969 collapse or the 2023 collapse? I think this one's pretty easy. Don't have to answer that the one. The most famous collapse in Cubs history, probably. Even though Frank worst. was... Right. But, like, we, we sussed it out, too, because sometimes, you know, the myth can become more powerful than the truth. But, yeah, certainly by comparison, there's no comparison. Well, well, the whole the whole city of Chicago had pennant fever. and so It was great. So... Okay. I mean, the one of these, the, the the one of these collapses that is probably the most similar to, at least shares which is a our, trait with which the sixty nine other would be, question would be the nineteen collapse only because while the nineteen Cubs didn't or the eighteen, which isn't even really a collapse because they made the playoffs, 
While they played okay down the stretch, the Brewers wouldn't lose, which was very, I mean, but the Mets one is like epic compared to that. It it went on for half a season. They just wouldn't lose. Well, that's what we agreed upon amongst the latter group is which one was the most like 2023. And we agreed it was 2019 because it was like a kind of a mediocre team that all of a sudden was there at the end and then wasn't. So if you throw in the ones we discussed tonight, which one is the most like 2023 amongst this group? Um, Does that make certainly not 69? Because yeah, not 69. They're too good to be compared to them. Um, so I was 70. I, I, so what we got? We got 69, 77, 85, 99, and 96. So, oh, 96. I would actually, I would actually go with 96 only because it was late season, but you know, yeah, because the, the thing with they weren't that close to actually making it though in 96. I mean, the, the 23 Cubs right. literally, literally let one it. slip through their fingers in the last three days of the season. It was right. That's true. It wasn't that anybody took it from the Cubs. The Cubs gave it away. Yeah. In 23. Yep. And and there's there's nothing in the in the seasons we discussed tonight that would actually compare to that. Like yeah. 77 was too far gone. You know, 69 they were out of it. 85 they were hurt and bad. 69. 69 and 23 kind of had the same root cause, which is, you know, Leo and Ross both went to the whip with the same guys over and over and over and over again. And, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't say root cause, but definitely had some similarities there. Yeah, but, you know, the Mets were just so good. So I guess even factoring the other one. You could say that the 23 Cubs got caught by the team that went to the World Series, the Diamondbacks. But the Diamondbacks, they won 84 games. They they made, they mainly made the playoffs because they beat the Cubs six out of seven times in the last month. So it's the Cubs' own damn fault. So that doesn't compare. Yeah. Um, yeah, 77 doesn't fit. 85 was a follow-up to a really good team that everybody got hurt. Yeah. 99 was the follow-up to a fluky, fun team, but... Right. I don't think any of us went in with huge expectations at 99 that they were going to actually. So, so the one most like 23 is 19, which written, the only unanswered question is which is the worst, which I think obviously tonight is 69, and that compares to 04. <laughs> yeah. Right? What's the worst collapse, Frank? We're going to put it to you because I don't know. Yeah, 2004 or 1969. I know you weren't on the episode, but you fucking lived it, obviously. You were there. You know, you can imagine what we talked about. You can listen to it. Like, I mean, that team was as talented as the 69 team was, right? And we did yeah. that. Like, yeah. they were, even with Nomar down the stretch, they added Hesop Choi and Derek Lee from a team that, even though they won 88 games only, came within a breath of the series. And even though Wood was and Fryer were both a little bit banged up, you know, they had, you know, they didn't have a bullpen, whatever, not getting into the Achilles heel. Let's talk about the fact that. And even after St. Louis ran by them, they were firmly in the grasp of a spot with two weeks to go. And I think the I difference know. between 04 and 69 was 04, we still had the snake venom in us from 03. Yeah. I think that's and, right. And 69, there was none of that. It was all the, the whole. 69 was the snake bite. Right. So, you know, that was what established the Cubs collapsing, the 
the whole legacy of collapsing Cubs teams. Because before then, they were either good enough to win the pennant or they were terrible and didn't didn't matter. Yeah. 69 was that first year where they took their run, fell apart, and then just every collapse, every collapse since 69 has been compared to 69. Whether it was better than 69, worse than 69, whatever, you know. But so for me, 69 is the one. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, we sussed it out. As much as I've complained about the long-term psyche, it's obviously there for a reason. And I think for a lot of the reasons went into just to try no, the it's, it's the reason why it's the reason why Raji Davis had to hit that fucking home run because right. we had to have that one last yep. moment. <laughs> I literally had that conversation with with uh, a neighbor the other night and saying, you know, another Cub fan. I was like, you know, I went to game four with my dad. Got to find, got to take him to the World a World Series game. You know, that's the game Lackey lost. They're down three one. We're walking out of the ballpark. We're like, well, at least they made the series, right? And I think about it in retrospect. I'm like, yeah. And if had they lost to that the next night in Game Five, then whatever. To have lost is one thing, but to have lost after being down three to one, and then winning Game Five, yeah. and winning, blowing them out in Game Six, and then leading all the way in Game Seven, and then losing. Yeah, I don't know that any of us would be able to ha- handle it. Uh, no. I just don't know. I mean, <laughs> but it is funny. There are still Cub fans who are like pissed off about the Rajay Davis homer. And it's like, get over it. It was yeah, it yeah. ended up being like it. That was it's it's actually it's it's almost like we needed it, right? Because did we you, saw did, them, we saw them blow it again, like we always had. But this time, they came back. Was it supposed to be easy? Fuck no! It's just like Boston having to be the first team to come down from three love. Like, well, like, I was thinking that when I watched the I watched the World Series video every year, and there's the Ben Zobra says. Um, we knew it wouldn't be easy, but we didn't think it would be this hard. Right. <laughs> and yeah, for us to go through it, you know, I'm fine with it. Like, I can't imagine, like, Rajay, you laugh about it. You also realize that if Rajay wasn't in center field, you know, they might not score those early runs because that flat-footed motherfucker yeah. kept not yeah. being in position to steal the game off a little bit. So, you know, but yeah. Yeah. No, well, I mean, we, we, we talked, oh, well, you know, the, to me, the thing that saved the World Series was in the top of the ninth, David Ross walked and they pinch ran for him, which meant Miguel Montero caught the bottom of the ninth, which yep. meant Aroldis didn't just throw fucking fastballs. Right. And he actually got through the inning and then they got to the rain delay and then they got through it because Ross <laughs> and we've documented this well, every pitch and- Aroldis threw to him in the playoffs was a fucking fastball. Every yeah. one. You've got to be kidding me. And when Montero was in there, you could see that Cleveland was just sitting heater and Montero kept calling sliders. So. And then there's the great um, Montgomery comes in to get the last out and he's shitting his pants as, you know, was kind of expected. (laughs) He's the only save he ever got in his big league career was a game seven of the world series. And he basically tells Miggy, he's like, I haven't thrown my, I didn't throw my curveball for a strike in the, uh, bullpen and Miggy turns doesn't even look at him and on his way to the plate goes ah eh, we'll figure it out and they called the first two they called two curveballs and the second one was grounded to Bryant that goes won the World Series so um well, let's not forget that you know Madden managed that game to make 
Francona make substitutions that allowed for him to have an outfielder who couldn't throw Albert Almora out at second base. Rajay. Again, he was flat-footed. I know he was on the warning track. The other thing, in the, earlier in that game, I've said it before, is like, do you remember when Bryant tagged up from third on an Addison Russell shallow pop yeah. fly to Rajay? Mm-hmm. And it was a high throw, and like, like, it, but like Ryzen caught it flat footed and made a high throw. And then also, Wilson Couture, the other catcher in the game, well, you might recall Wilson had that big double, but it was a high fly. Mm-hmm. He kind of bounced on the warning track in right center. It's like, yeah. you know, really good center fielder might catch it. I mean, saw so like Rajay, there are three plays in that game. Well, Rajay's playing partially why Rajay's playing center is remember in game six. Um, who the hell was the guy who played center? The big white guy. Him oh, and the left fielder yeah. got confused and let Russell's ball drop for a double. It was yeah. an out, and they let it, it drop. A, it was a three-run double. Yeah. So, so. Kind of makes all those collapses worth it, right, Frank? Yep. And and since I wasn't on the 2001 uh, episode, I must say, <laughs> mixed it eats ass. Fucking a, bro. <laughs> well, you will enjoy that. You read it, and I, I will. I read uh, at one point. I read um, from the from the moment the Cubs were eliminated to the end of the season. I, I read Fred's stats, and you will not be oh. surprised at how amazing they are. Oh yeah, after after they get eliminated, as soon as yeah. it didn't mean anything, that motherfucker hit like you wouldn't believe. So his stats look great. So people look at it yeah. like, oh, he was a good pickup. No, he was not. Oh God, and that. Fucking 30 home runs with six different teams nonsense. Which he did, though, too, for a team that after he got off to a horrible start in April, and then he finished up. So it was like both sides of it. Warms up at the end of the season after they get eliminated, starts out cold, and they get buried, and then it's the same thing. So That asshole's in Cooperstown. (laughs) Hey, Frank, one of these days we're going to have to do a a history of Cubs catchers, and and, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't have you on for that one. So. Oh yeah, well that I I think I've suggested that do a RTC position by position. No, we will. Yeah, and, we've already yeah. done. We've we, done center we already, fielders. We've we done did one center field. So far. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure you yes. improved though. Yeah, um, I'm. I think I think with center field, we came down to the greatest center fielder in, in hit. I think Hack Wilson is in the discussion, even though he was a fire plug that could only hit. I mean, he's responsible for kind of blowing the 29 World Series, but, like, that's what we're left to. That's how weak it is. So, yeah. Well, and, I mean, uh, in my lifetime, Adolfo Phillips was okay. Rick Monday, simply by tenure. Well, even by today's standards, Monday is the last center fielder to even have just four seasons of 135 starts in center. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Fowler was only here for two years. And Fowler's – Fowler's in the like one or two only because the, the confluence of the World Series and all the shit that he did. That's all it took for him to so, be considered pretty much the best center fielder in the last 70 years. So now we get to find out if Pete Crow is the real McCoy. Yeah. If September's any indication. Let's, let's hope we don't have to find out if Pete is the real thing until 2020. No, Pete, Pete Crow. Crow. Sutcliffe, Pete Crow. Somehow Crow. decided that his name was Pete Crow. Pete Crow, not Pete. Crow Armstrong, but Pete, Pete Crow Armstrong. <laughs> so he kept saying, "Oh, Pete Crow, had a, Pete Crow's got a lot of speed out there." <laughs> I love Rick Sutcliffe. He's so horrible. He's the worst. 
it's a good thing that we um you know he he he's trying to wear out his good the goodwill he's trying very very yeah. hard and he can't he's but, not gonna be able to do it we're still gonna problem, we're still gonna like him but it just it's like come on but <laughs> what it is is he's he's the new ron santo he is our drunkle <laughs> interesting i like that he's he's the drunkle who's gonna just pull for the cubs and there's gonna be malapropisms and be a bit of a mascot huh tell us how, so- how amazing ian Happ looked in batting practice yeah <laughs> and how billy williams just wanted to go on a golf cart and hear brennan davis hit the ball <laughs> but um he can still do that in des moines anytime he wants but the funny thing is, is every so often he'll have that moment of clarity. He had this great analysis. It's like two years ago, but it sticks in my mind because it's great analysis from Rick Sutcliffe, where Albert uh, Albert Alzale, every time when he was a starter, every time a guy would get on base, he would stop trusting his stuff, and he would get too cautious once he gave up a hit. And he talked about it, and I was like, this is unbelievable where did this i i understand rick Sutcliffe is a great pitcher so he obviously knows about pitching yeah. i'm just not used to hearing it come up yeah <laughs> yeah i usually can't and, act he can't access the knowledge on the, yeah. on the broadcast usually which no. is unfortunate but which so now we're left with pete crow yeah. <laughs> oh. it is funny though there's a when was that when did he finish pitching for the cubs 90 his last season was 91, I believe, 91. because he yeah. helped open up uh, – he and Dave Otto helped set a mark for uh, opening up a new ballpark in Camden Yards by throwing a whole bunch of consecutive shutout innings when he was with the uh, – who did he go to? He, he pitched for the Orioles, right? Yeah, the yeah. Orioles and then yeah. the Cardinals. And, yeah, and Otto's pitching for the Indians. Yeah. Yep. Um, so basically, I mean, figure you, you start to figure out baseball when you're like – charitably when you're seven or eight. People who are 40 never saw him pitch for the Cubs. And the marquee still throws him out there like, you know, this is he's going to appeal to half their list or viewers. <laughs> They're like, who well, is this rambling asshole? Well, at we least, know who at he least is. Mar- that doesn't mean they Marquee, do. At least marquee shows games in which he pitched, unlike Ernie Banks playing shortstop. So, well, it was funny. When I was still living in, in Evanston, um, and Marquee launched. They were doing the Marquee Mystery Games and all that, which I love. Well, it was the same four games. How many times can yeah. we watch the '96 opener against the Padres? How right. was that, that game? But it was fun at the beginning because one of the things was I always tried to guess the year and then guess why are they showing us yeah. this game? But they had a couple of games where Sutcliffe just threw gems. '84, yeah. and, sure. and, and for my wife who. You know, became a Cub fan through me when we moved to Chicago. Uh, she had no familiarity with Sutcliffe, no familiarity with Andre Dawson, and watching some of these games on Marquee, she's like, "Wow, I really like Rick Sutcliffe. Wow, I really like Andre Dawson." It's <laughs> like, yeah, they're, yeah they I mean, rule. That's one of my big my big complaints with them is they supposedly have this entire library of games. Yeah, show them. Like, I, I get irritated. They show Harry's last game all the time. Show yeah. like one of his first ones when he was really good. Yeah. Like you don't have to, you know, we don't need, you know, post-stroke carry that much because you no. got, you supposedly have this vault of games where he's in his prime and where he's really good. 
it's like I I have the I was talking about I wrote about Andre Dawson, so I obligatorily I have to put the Luis Celzar um the game winner against the Cardinals in there when Andre yeah. scores from first. And Fells is like, it's so nice to hear Harry. Like that's pretty yeah. str- Harry is all over it. He's and yeah. it's like they have a whole supposedly they have this whole vault of that. Use it. Like yeah. maybe some of your younger fans will understand why people love Harry because he was so good. He wasn't just this weird, you know, slurring, you know, the well, Brian Dempster impression. It's just to close the loop on it. Prez asked us the other night because you know that motherfucker was born in 1994. Yeah. But like, what was our take on Jack Brickhouse? And like, we were. You, I mean, Frank would have uh, immediate uh, members. So... He was a for right. He was not a fan fan in our household. And I remember, like, because I wasn't really, like, trained to learn, uh, turn into the channel 44 and learn about here. I didn't know about him until, like, my brother was throwing pitches in the backyard and he's, like, going, big swing and a miss. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, oh, that's the White Sox announcer, Harry Carey. I'm like, wow, he sounds like fun. Like, it was a lot more fun than who we got. So we got Harry. I was, like, already, I was 10 years old when Harry came to the Cubs. I was pumped. And he lived up to it because he was. He was not. Yeah. yeah and, and like, I don't know what your take would be on Brick. I, I'm sure it's you were not horribly fine. He was there. He was more of a WGN guy. He was there forever and whatever. But like, uh, yeah. Every time Oscar Zamora would come into pitch, hey, we're going to get Zamora Zamora on. <laughs> Every time Dennis Lamp, it's dark and wriggly, but we got a lamp on the mound. That sounds more like Steve Stone than anything. No, that was Brick yep. House. No, I know. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, the, stone, the awful puns. Yeah. But the, the stone puns are like tongue in cheek, right? And uh, mispronunciation like, of Spanish names. So you had Jesus Alou and ooh, less <laughs> generational. But Harry didn't do that. He would just accuse them of like, how do you lose on a fly ball in the sun <laughs> from Latin America? Or what was the one guy speaks Spanish and one guy speaks Mexican? That was one yeah. of Harry's. Well, I probably, yeah, they can't really understand each other. One of them speaks Spanish, the other one speaks Mexican. Oh, God. Harry was so great before the story. I mean, he would just, <laughs> I think of, he would give Sandberg a hard time. Yeah. I mean, it was oh, yeah. great. He was, he was like, us, he, right? He like, it. when the right. shit went I, sideways, Harry wasn't going to pretend that he, it was he, 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 a year and he pops it up. <laughs> well, yeah, he would. He, like, I, I use Jody Davis as an example. He literally sings Jody, Jody, yeah. the Davy Crockett dude. But then I swear Jody was the one guy that crushed it. Like, yep. ah, yeah. up. Like, I feel like it was like when Jody was batting more than anything. I mean, yeah. and if you think about it, that's the way, like, that's how it should be. Like when they did something great, Harry was excited. When they yeah. did something bad, he was like us. He was like, oh. I mean, unless you were Ken Boyer, who he just fucking hated. I mean, it's legendary <laughs> that he just gave, he hated fucking Ken Boyer and he couldn't say anything nice about Ken Boyer ever. And, uh, Is that right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's Boyer. <laughs> wow. The two outs about, well, when Boyer pops up to second, we'll, uh, I'll give you the final, I'll give you the totals. Well, <laughs> That's funny. What if the story was behind that? I don't know. It, I'm sure Boy, it'll be something little and petty. I'm sure. Boyer, he hated Boyer, Ken didn't, Boyer. Boyer didn't share the room to Gussie, the, the, the room key for Gussie, Gussie Bush's wife. Um, but, Boyer probably yeah, saw but, Harry skipping out of Gussie's wife's room. That son of a well, bitch knows what I did. What made it worse with Brickhouse was the older he got, the more he looked like a penis with glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Even had the notch on top of his. Yeah. 
Well, and it's yeah. bad. You know, Milo liked him, so you know right away that that's bad. If yeah, Milo well, Hamilton and, and you were pals. You're there. And it was funny because Brickhouse did this whole passing of the torch yeah. in his last game with Milo, <laughs> and the Sox yeah. hired Harry and the Cubs hired <laughs> hired him like the next day. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. Great. Unfortunately, they couldn't bring uh, they couldn't bring Pearsall with. No, <laughs> no, they brought him over later to be the out to be the outfield instructor. Right. Yeah, so he could, yeah, we, yell, he, he could yell at Quincy Carter. The weekend, the weekend, <laughs> the weekend that they retired Ernie Banks's number, they retired his number on a Sunday. On that Saturday, they had nineteen eighty two. Yeah, they had an old timers game on that. Saturday. As much as much as Dallas Green was like building a new tradition, he was very quick to actually kind of honor those guys. Believe it or not, because Banks was the first number to retire, and but Green's the, for sure. The old timers game was just a show of Jose Cardinal and Jimmy Pearsall. They were just having a ball. They were having. Fun. You came back and you were there, right? You came I was back there that weekend. That? I came in oh, specifically for the Banks number retirement, hmm. and. Pearsall was playing center field. They had the Cubs legends against everybody else. So Pearsall's out there wearing a Boston uniform, playing center field. <laughs> and he is making putouts. He tagged, he was playing center field. He, I think he tagged Cardinal out at the plate at one point. He ran all the way in, you mean? He ran all the way in to tag Cardinal. <laughs> it was great. And we were just, it was right after he got fired for saying ball players' wives were horny broad. Oh, so we were just horny broads. We were giving yep. it to him all through the game. <laughs> you were in the bleachers? Yeah, I was at the bleachers. We were just oh, giving shit. it to Pearsall. It was so much fun. And he was, like, he was laughing through the whole thing. Yeah. Well, he's probably, but he's like, well, like, he's like a 50 year old man, right? Probably at that point, yeah. if not uh, pretty much. And he's like catching five ball. He's like in great shape. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and uh, and of course because I mean he was famous for jawing. I mean right like he uses that character. He hits his hundredth homer off a of Dallas screen. He runs around the bases backwards, full mm -hmm. shit like that. Uh, of course he's gonna like not gonna like take offense, especially as an old timer in the bleacher. But I'm sure you guys didn't even you, you didn't even punch softly, even though you know. Oh was, no, you know. <laughs> hey Jimmy, you got some horny broads up here. Come up after the. <laughs> You don't recall any responses. He, he might have had a good re re retort or two. He was, you just know, he was a trained broadcaster. The, the best, the best response I ever heard from a player in the bleachers was Greg Luzinski. Um, it was a day game. It was because Luzinski played for the Phillies long before lights. Notre Dame graduate. Notre Dame and Niles. I mean, uh, Chicago yeah. kid is what I was saying. Yeah. Right. So, and one of the rules was always don't heckle Chicago ones. But this one guy just kept giving it to Luzinski the whole game. You're a bum, Luzinski. You're a bum. This went on for like four innings of him just yelling at Luzinski, calling him a bum. Finally, Luzinski just turned around and said, if I'm a bum, how come I'm the one at work today? <laughs> <laughs> so That goes of Lee Elia. <laughs> so, on that note, guys. Yeah, well, thanks. Perfect. This was, was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah we'll, uh, thanks for having as me we, on. As we do our positional Cubs, we will uh, we'll have you. You can, you can come on to enlighten us more about Cubs. Well, I would, I would, I could rhapsodize about Harry Cheedy. <laughs> Many of us have herpes. This fitting has got to be done with one of the best games of all time. Just unbelievable. Got to congratulate the uh, the Dolan family.